we're going to open up to a brand new series. We're going to start a brand new series today, and we are in the book of Malachi. Now, if you are not sure where the book of Malachi is, you just open up to Matthew in the New Testament and turn left, okay, because it's the last book in your Old Testament. So we're going to look into the book of Malachi, and we are going to be spending the next several weeks going into uh, the Christmas season, studying through this short book. Uh, This is what is called a minor prophet. The minor prophets are called minor, not because their message is less important, but only because the volume of information they give is less. It's a shorter book at the end of the Old Testament. And so the book of Malachi, literally the name Malachi in Hebrew means messenger. And some people question whether or not there was actually a guy with the name Malachi, or whether they're just saying this is the book of the messenger, and the messenger bringing us a particular message. Uh, So coming off the heels of a missionary conference where missionaries are literally simply messengers. They are people who are sent with the message of God to warn the people that they need to get their lives right before time runs out and it's too late. And so Malachi is a herald, and he heralds the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's his message. Get ready. Because the Lord is coming. So what I'm going to do is spend a little bit of time giving you an overview and an introduction of this entire book. And uh, we'll take almost half of this message just giving you an idea of what Malachi is all about. And then we're going to get into just the first few verses today for the first message that we have. And so uh, just looking at the Bible, anytime you study the Bible, there's three applications. We have historical, doctrinal, and practical applications of any place in the Scripture. So understanding the book of Malachi historically... Uh, I want you to understand, and this is in your notes, that this is the last word given by God until the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all of the revelation of Scripture comes all the way through up to the time of Malachi. That means that Malachi is, your, is the last book in the Old Testament in the order in which it's placed in your Bible, but more importantly, chronologically. Because this book was written about, more or less, and people want to argue details, but around the year 400 B.C. So about 400 years before the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This would be anywhere between 50 and 100 years after Ezra and Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem after the captivity, rebuilt the temple, and rebuilt the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And so when that was going on, um, God was working through them. And the Jews, what happened is they, as they saw the rebuilding of the temple and, and the older men that would have been around during the old temple before it was destroyed by Babylon, they would have anticipated and expected the Messiah to return and make this new temple, as the scriptures would have prophesied, glorious. And they expected it to happen then. But after they were done with the temple in the city, 50 to 100 years, that's a full generation of people, it didn't happen. And the people were starting to get frustrated and they were starting to get impatient and nothing was happening. And the book of Malachi is the last word given by God. After this time, 400 years before the coming of the Lord, God is silent. And the people of God, there were no open miracles going on. All they would have had in their walk with God is the scriptures. That's all they would have had. They would have had to have faith in God through the scriptures. And so, for some reason, what was going on in their lives and what Malachi addresses here is that apparently 
the scriptures alone for them was not enough. They began to doubt God's word and they began to live selfishly. And so as a result, it was a time in history where there was a lot of apathy toward God. And so the issue that we're going to see as we go through this book is that God speaks and man doubts his words. That's what was going on historically. Doctrinally, this would point towards the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. As many things do throughout the scriptures, it has a historical application of the coming of a kingdom. They expected that kingdom to be established at his first coming. Because of Israel's rejection, it was not established at his first coming. It then is postponed a couple thousand years and will be fulfilled at his second coming. So doctrinally and prophetically, the book of Malachi will look forward to a time um, when the Jews are reestablished. Well, we know now after 19 centuries, after this exile among the Gentile nations, the nation of Israel has been reestablished since the year 1948. And so the direct application prophetically of the book of Malachi will point towards this time of transition that we're in now and ultimately leading into the time that we understand as the tribulation, which is really about the Jew and their apathy toward God and his word. And he goes about getting their attention with all of the plagues and the things that happen throughout the book of the Revelation. But practically, and this is really where we live, and this is the reason why I've chosen this book to study, and this is really what you should be interested in, the practical, inspirational, personal application of the Scripture. What does that all mean to me? Well, what I want for us to see through the book of Malachi is it has to do practically with our walk with God now before it's too late. We need to learn how to walk with God now before it's too late. And that's really what we're calling this message. The book of Malachi, the study of Malachi, I'm calling it as a subtitle, Seven Key Steps in Your Walk with God. And so this book will apply to anybody who struggles in their walk with God, having only his word available. You see, we live at the end of this New Testament time. And you might think that this is an odd comparison. I find it quite significant, actually, that 400 years before the Lord Jesus Christ breaks the silence, splits the skies, and lands with his feet on planet Earth, God gave his last revelation, the book of Malachi. And do you realize that in the last days before the literal second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ where God himself splits the skies and his feet once again touch on planet earth, which prophetically could be any day now, it could be very, very soon, that just about 400 years ago in the year 1611, God gave to us the final revelation of his word in the English-speaking language, which will be the universal language of planet Earth. It is English that is the language of all commerce and all trade. You can travel anywhere in this world. You can go to any airport in this world, and you will find that the language written on the signs in the airport are in the local language and in English. You trade internationally, you trade in English. You fly an international airplane, the pilots have to make their their communications in English. English is the language of these last days. And God gave us a Bible that was published in 1611, and he will go about 400 years silent and break the silence with his literal physical coming to planet Earth. This is the time in which we live. This is an important time. And so if you have the book of Malachi in chapter number one, the very first verse, just notice how it starts out. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. 
So practically speaking, and I put this in your notes, this is what it's all about. The Word of God gives a burden to a man concerning a people. The Word of the Lord, the burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So God burdens Malachi to take God's Word. He burdens his heart. It's a a weight that he must carry. And he's going to give this message to his people, the nation of Israel. For us, we can do the same thing. Again, we're coming on the heels of a missions conference. A missionary has a message for people. The message for us today is, hey, hey, get ready. The Lord is coming soon. And so in a time when there's no open miracles, in a time when all we have is the written word of God, in a time when frequently the circumstances can be quite challenging and quite difficult, as we'll talk about today, we need to learn how to continue to walk with God. We need to make sure that our lives are clean and right because you just don't know what could happen. And when that trumpet sounds and when that day comes, it will come without warning. It'll come in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and you won't have any time to get ready. You need to get ready now. Well, the audience of that day was Israel, specifically the priesthood. And so at that time, again, historically, the audience is Israel. It says the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. But if you looked at a couple of verses, like verse number six, it says, A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father, where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear, saith the Lord of hosts? Unto you, O priests, that despise my name. And over and over again, we see the priesthood being addressed directly. If you look at chapter two, it says, And now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. And you could go down to verse number seven. For the priests lifts should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. And so when we look at this idea of the priesthood, we're we're trying to draw a practical application. What exactly does that mean to me today? Well, the priest in the Old Testament context was the one who had the closest personal relationship with God directly, in the Old Testament anyway, right? In Israel, the priesthood were the ones that ministered to the Lord in all of the sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple. They're the ones who dealt with the brazen altar and that brass laver and the candlesticks and the table of showbread and the altar of incense and then ultimately the high priest could go in before the very holy of holies and before the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant. And these were the things that only the priesthood of the tribe of Levi were allowed to do. The priest in the Old Testament context was somebody who was a mediator between God and man. The first mention of priest in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 14, and it's a man by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is an unusual priest. He is a type and a picture, a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a Gentile priest. After that, into the book of Exodus, we see the usage of the word priest in a pagan application as we see the priests of Egypt and the priests of Midian. These were not things that the Lord established. Then God gives to Israel through the tribe of Levi and ultimately Aaron and his descendants, the job of the priesthood. Ultimately, then, we get to the time of Jesus Christ, who, according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, is our great high priest. And then after Jesus Christ, we continue into an era of which we live now, where there are many false religions and and religious groups and world religions where people still invoke the term priest, and people use priests to minister between them and God is some sort of a mediator, and this is a pagan practice that is not to be applied to the true believers in Jesus Christ, as we will see. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. 
by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, notice, once for all, and every priest, of human priests, in other words, standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. So there are some priests who day after day, week after week, continue to offer the same kind of sacrifices, but he says, which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Aren't you glad that he did that? Aren't you glad that we don't have to go to a man called a priest and have him go to God for us? Aren't you glad that you can do that by yourself? Can I encourage you today to understand and to really think about in your life that the pastor of a New Testament local church is not a priest? It's interesting how we who believe we have some sound doctrine and understanding of the Bible and might actually look down our noses at groups that invoke the usage of priests do sometimes often want to behave like our pastors are our priests. Isn't that funny? You see, God gave the ministry to all of us. We are all able to go before the Lord, right? Isn't that true? I mean, but some people want their pastor to be the paid professional who does the ministry for them. Some people look at pastors to be the one that they're going to bring their prayer request to and say, would you go to God for me concerning this and as as i've told you before sometimes i'm glad to pray for you but i'm more glad to pray with you (laughs) because sometimes i'll ask people well i'll pray for that if you will because you can too you know and that's an important thing to understand sometimes people want to address their pastors with some lofty title and, and they want to exalt us above some level of common man and have non-biblical expectations as though we're not just like you. Pastors are not priests. You need to understand that. Nevertheless, we have to have an application of Malachi. What's that all about? Well, in the New Testament, we do see the word priest used. Interestingly, it's only found in the Gospels. It's found in the book of Acts. It's found in the book of Hebrews. And it's found in the book of Revelation. Now, that ought to get your attention. Because all of those applications are very Jewish in their literal understanding of those books. But there is one other mention in the epistles. And it's found in 1 Peter chapter number 2. And we're going to look there. Now as we're going to notice this, it's very interesting. Because this issue of a priesthood does have this application that we get from 1 Peter chapter 2 to our lives. And this is a... A function, this is a belief, this is a core value of Baptists throughout history. And we refer to it as the priesthood of the believer. The priesthood of the believer. And and basically the idea is every single true born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is considered a priest. And where do we get that? We get that right here in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse number 4. To whom coming, the context is the Lord, coming to the Lord, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, Peter writes, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, notice, and holy priesthood, to offer up, not physical, but spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Going down to verse number nine, it says, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time fast were not a people. So he's talking about the Gentiles, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 
So you know the story. Jesus Christ ultimately gives his life as the ultimate sacrifice. He fulfills all the pictures and the types of the Old Testament. He's crucified. At the moment that he's crucified, the veil in the temple is rent. It is split down the middle and it's torn from the top to the bottom. That veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. From the top to the bottom, meaning God did that. Man did not do that. God tore the veil. God opened up the way so that all of us now, through Jesus Christ, have direct access to God. Aaron was the only one, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, that could go into the very presence before the Ark of the Covenant where God's Shekinah glory would come down and commune with him. Now we can all get in the very presence of God because of the priesthood of the believer. We can all enter into the holies of holies before the very throne room of God. That's prayer. That's worship. We can all offer up spiritual sacrifices. We can all intercede for people according to the word of God. We can talk to God about men. And we can talk to men in the place of God. So Malachi, which addresses the priesthood, can be applied spiritually to all of us if we have Jesus Christ as our Lord and our Savior. So with the remainder of the time that we have, I... I want us to just look at the first five verses of Malachi and, and look at the specific thing that I want us to see today. The title I didn't give to you, but it's the top of your notes, is the key step I want you to learn in your continual walk with God in these last days is to not doubt God's love. And that's the problem we see here in Malachi chapter 1. Let me start again in verse 1 and we'll read to verse 5 and that's all we'll have for today. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I love Jacob. And I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. They shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Now, as we get into this, I just want you to realize we're going to be talking about things that have Old Testament context and reference, but really there is a core practical spiritual application for each and every one of us. And I believe God really wants to show us that. Let me just take a second and pray for us and we'll look at some of these verses. Now, Heavenly Father, as we do look at these few verses, I do pray on the context of which we understand your book, the book of the prophet Malachi, that you would open up our eyes to see exactly where you would have us to be. Lord, I know that for myself as well as for everybody, there are plenty of opportunities and plenty of times when life just gets you down. And when the tough times are coming and when you're not sure which way is up and which way is down, one thing we need to remember, you still love us. And there's no reason for us to ever doubt or question your love for us. Please reinforce that truth in our hearts. Please make it real. Please help us. I want to pray for each and every one that's here today that right now is hurting, right now is struggling, and right now really needs to hear this. God, let your spirit come and just cover us like a blanket and just wrap your loving arms around us and help us to know how we can respond and what you would expect of us. We need to walk with you now more than ever, so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first point I want us to see together is what I'm calling God's conditional, unconditional love. That sounds weird. God's conditional, unconditional love. I think you're going to see 
what we mean is we kind of get into this thing. Okay, so I'm starting with a question. Have you ever felt like God didn't love you? Well, you know, don't raise your hand or anything. But if you're honest, I'm sure there are times in your life, there's always times in your life, there's times in my life where I sit and I wonder, man, Lord, I mean, okay, theologically, okay, I know you love me. I I know. I mean, I, I wouldn't be so bold as to say God doesn't love me. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes t- times are just really tough, and I'm not feeling it. <laughs> I'm not feeling the love, you know what I mean? And uh, that happens. That happens to each and every one of us. But the great thing about our God is not only the fact that He does love us, and He loves us unconditionally, but He actually wants us to know that, and He wants us to experience that love. In fact, He reminds us of it all the time so that we won't doubt. So he comes into verse number two after that introduction about a man having a burden from the word of God for a people. And he says, with this very clearly stated confirmation of fact, he starts right out and says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. I have loved you. But we are the ones that have a problem, right? We're the ones that measure the love by the deeds. We're the ones that want to feel the love. We're the ones that respond in ways that, hey, if I'm not feeling it, I don't think you love me anymore. And that's a mistake. That's a mistake in interpersonal relationships, but that's for sure a mistake with God. That's what teenagers do if they sometimes don't get what they think that they want. It's what young people do if sometimes they don't think what they want. You know what? That's what old people do if sometimes they think they're not getting what they deserve or what they want. But you need to understand that love can't be judged by your current feelings today because I have this in your notes that it's a fact that love is not a feeling. It's an action. Love is not a feeling. It's an action. Now, thank God for the times that you feel it. Thank God for the times when you get the goosebumps and all that stuff's going on. But... If you've got a few years under your belt like I do, every day ain't like that. Every day doesn't work out that way. So, the people respond to God, and they say, wherein hast thou loved us? Can you imagine the gall? God says, I have loved you, but they're doubting it. And they're saying, really? Really, God? I mean, wherein have you loved us? And so God replies, He says, yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. Okay, so before we get into the loving Jacob part, we got to talk a little bit about the hating Esau part. Because if you're not familiar with the Scriptures, and if you haven't come across this before, and maybe you just wandered in here today, and you're thinking, well, that's kind of weird. I mean, God loved one guy, and he hated another guy. And Jacob and Esau were twin brothers if you know the story. And so we're going to look a little bit about this. And what is it, this thing? I mean, God said that he hated somebody. I mean, I thought that he had this unconditional love thing going on. Well, I want you to understand that there are some things that God hates. And the Bible's very clear about that. You see, we have to get our mind from the mind of God and not just from our own thoughts and experiences and opinions. God says that he hates some things, right? Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 16. These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. 
a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, and a heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. If you're involved in those things, you can know for sure God hates those kinds of behaviors. If you looked ahead in Malachi into chapter number 2 and verse number 16, it says this, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. Putting away is the phrase, and we'll study that when we get to it, of a man who puts away his wife from the marriage relationship. People often refer to that just simply as divorce. The Bible uses the word divorce in other places. It uses the word putting away in this place. We'll study that at that time. But the idea of a marriage being put away is something God absolutely hates. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 6. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He says to this church, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And he says, which I also hate. Go down to verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And he goes on and he says, which thing also I hate. So God hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You say, well, who are these Nicolaitans? These are bad dudes, man. Well, the Nicolaitans were people who held a priest class. Remember, we're not supposed to have those in the New Testament times. So he's writing to a church, right, in the beginning of the book of Revelation. And they exalted this priest class as an exalted class of people above the commoners. And the people had to come to them to get their info from God. And God says, no, not in the New Testament anymore. You try and establish priests when there aren't priests, and that's a mistake. And if you set yourself up as the great high priest and say, you all just need to come to me, and I'll tell you what God says, and you just do what I say, and you'll be fine, God says, yeah, I can't stand that at all. And so if you do that, or if you teach others that, he says, I hate that. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, interestingly, in verse number 8, he says everything happens within its time. There's a time to love, and there's a time to hate. It's interesting. We could go on. We could see things that God hates. He hates abominations. He hates idolatry. And what we typically do when we see all these things and we try and reason through them in our lives, we, we think about this phrase that's commonly quoted. We say, hey, man, hate the sinner. I mean, hate the sin, but love the sinner almost said that wrong okay we'll, we'll clarify love the sinner hate the sin that's the idea reach out to people we all fail we all fall short we all do dumb things right so you hate the deed but you don't hate the person well we're back in malachi jacob have i loved esau have i hated sounds like he's hating a person What's that all about? Because the other things are all deeds. They're all events. They're all things that people do, right? Well, it's interesting because if you looked at Psalm 11 and verse number five, God talks about hating the wicked and those that love violence. So now he's referring to people. He's referring to them in a general sense. If you are people who are wicked, if you are people who love violence, God hates those people. That's what he said. So now it's starting to get a little more personal. But I want you to understand something. And this is, this is a point that you got to get. 
Although all of that is said, I want you to understand that God never in his word one time states that he ever hated any specific individual. Never. Not even Esau. And I'm going to prove it to you. Because Esau represents a group of people. Just like Jacob represents a group of people. When we refer to them, we refer to them with the term federal head. Jacob is the federal head representing the nation of Israel. Jacob is the man who had his name changed to Israel. He had 12 sons that become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. When God refers to Jacob, he's really referring, there are times when he's specifically dealing with the man, but in this case, he's dealing with the entire nation of Israel under the headship of the man who originated that group of people, Jacob. Esau is the man who sold his birthright to Jacob and despised God, and he becomes the federal head over another entire nation of people called Edom. And Edom become the enemies of God throughout history. And we see that in Malachi chapter 1 and verse number 4, because he says, I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness, whereas Edom saith, you see the connection? Because Esau is Edom, just like Jacob is Israel. Now, when we look at these statements that he says, I love Jacob and I hated Esau, we find that that statement is repeated again in the New Testament book of Romans. And so I want you to look with me to Romans chapter 9. Because in Romans chapter 9, and if you have been with us regularly, you know that about a year ago, we studied this chapter. We studied the entire book of Romans over the last couple of years, and it was about a year ago that we were in chapter 9. And Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 frequently trip people up, and there's really no need for that to happen. And if you're really interested in the details of Romans 9, 10, and 11, then I encourage you just to go to our website and go back in the archives and find the messages. You can find them. You can listen to them, and hopefully it'll help you. We're just going to jump in in verse number 11. I'll start in verse number 10. Romans chapter 9, uh, and says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. So the context is Isaac and Rebekah, and they had kids. Verse number 11. For the children, the children of Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, we're talking about Jacob and Esau. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, and he's quoting Malachi 1, 2, and 3. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And so in the book of Romans, we find this connection, and we find it quoted again. And so I want you to understand the, understand, the context of Romans and the teaching that comes from it, because when he's referring to Malachi, he gives us greater light. So in verse number 11 of Romans, the children being not yet born, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. People get all twisted out of shape with this idea of election, thinking that God has predestinated some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell. And through our series in Romans, this is not the time to do that. God made it very clear that's not at all what he's doing, but rather the election is the election of the nation of Israel to be the nation of people that God will use to carry out his mission to reach all people in the world. And in verse number 12, where it says, It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger. In the narrative of the book of Genesis, where Jacob and Esau are alive, you never find one time that the Scriptures reveal that the man Esau 
ever served the man Jacob. But you do find that the nation of Edom served the nation of Israel. And you could go back to Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23 where it says this, And the Lord said unto her, unto Rebekah, Two nations are in thy womb. And you think, man, you had childbirth problems, okay? <laughs> and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people. And the elder group of people that came from the firstborn son, which was Esau, shall serve the younger group of people that come from the younger son, which is Jacob. And so this idea of federal headship is clearly the context and it's clearly the understanding. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So in Romans, it quotes Malachi, but Malachi is written hundreds and hundreds of years after the fact that Edom had proven that all they wanted to do was reject God and persecute the people of God. And so after it was all said and done, after Edom had every chance in the world, like everybody has any chance in the world, chose not to follow God, God says, well, I hate those guys. I hate the guys that love wickedness and do violence. He said that. And it applies to Edom. And so that's the, con that's the context. Esau is the federal head representing Edom. So in summary, and this is in your notes, God's offer of love is unconditional, right? I mean, God offers his love to everybody unconditionally, without prejudice. John 3.16. I mean, it's, it's available to everybody. But then he waits for us to respond. That's the conditional part. The offer is unconditional. But the condition is, will you receive it? Will you do anything about it? So based on our free will response, God then responds... In kind, you will find this over and over in the Bible. When we decide to love him, he will love us forever. If we choose to reject him, he rejects us. And if we repent of our sin, God repents of the judgment that is planned for all sinners. And that's what happens. We free will. We choose to do what we want to do to this unconditional offer, but conditioned upon our choice will determine the outcome. And that's the problem. So our second point for study is our impatient demands. So we saw God's love. Now we're going to see our impatient demands because we are impatient. We demand more and more and more. And so it's kind of the uh, thanks, but what have you done for me lately? Kind of a mindset. So I want you to notice back in Malachi, so he says, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Then he says, yet ye say, and they were contradicting what God was saying with their own ideas. As we go through this book of Malachi, you could go home today, it's a short little book, four little chapters, and you can look and you can count them. You will find that God quotes them ten times in four chapters. God quotes the things that Israel said ten specific times in these four short chapters, stating what they said in contradiction to what God said. So in your notes, I said this. God's listening to your words. Please be aware of that. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36, the Bible says that we are going to give an account 
for every idle word spoken. You ever deal with that? Parents are dealing with their kids and you say to your kids, hey, why'd you say that? And they say, I didn't say that. You say, yes, you did. You said that. They say, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. You said that. And then the parents kind of get hacked. I get hacked. And, you know, the kids are like, well, why are you so upset? Well, maybe because God made me that way. Because remember, of the six things God hates, yea, seven are an abomination. A false witness that speaketh lies is something God hates. And you see, God gives to kids, parents, as a picture, an imperfect, certainly imperfect picture of how God deals with his children through your parents, especially if you have believing parents. And as a result, when you lie to them, they hate it. They hate it. See, the Jews back in this time were a lot like us today. In the time of Laodicea, those of you who have studied, you understand the Laodicean church period, the time in which we live represented in Revelation 3 and how that word Laodicea literally means the rights of the people, civil rights, my rights, and everybody's fighting for my rights and what have you done for me lately and me and mine and how dare you and, and I and, and, and this, is the, this is the prevailing spirit of our age. Everybody's interested in themselves and their pleasure and their desires, whether they be sinful or otherwise. If it's about me, that's all that matters and as long as it's your truth, it's truth enough and, and everybody's forgotten about God and nobody cares about righteousness and what's right and what he says anymore. They forget God's word. As we look at the priesthood, we're going to find things said about them that they were corrupted, they were polluted, they were unclean, they were disqualified from service. God couldn't use them because of their selfishness. Israel's a lot like us. We can learn a lot from Israel. This is a time in their history where things are not going well for them circumstantially. There's a lot of apostasy. There's a new temple but there's no glory as the former. There's a lot of apathy. And there's only a small percentage of the people of Israel that are really concerned about their situation. And so they equate all these difficulties with the fact that, well, God must not love us anymore. He loved us back then. Doesn't really love us anymore. Before we get too tough on Israel, you ever been there? Kids are sick. Bills are overdue. Your friends turned on you. You got family pressures. You got physical problems. Worry. Guilt. Sorrow. Regret. Lack of purpose. Can't remember the last time you had fun. Where's God in all of that? I mean, we look at life. We look at others around us. We wonder whether or not all this faith stuff is really worth it. It's a problem. So I want us to look together at Psalm 73 because this psalm describes for us, and it, it, you know, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's 28 verses, but just stick with me. I'm going to come over here. This is such a applicable section of Scripture. and I, I really want to I want to help you guys out. So I'm going to sit over here a little closer. How about that? 
Follow along with me, will you? Psalm 73. This is the attitude that we're struggling with. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Verse 3, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever had that happen in your life? Have you ever noticed that you're trying and trying and trying to do what's right? And you look around and people you work with, people you live around, friends, acquaintances, they don't care about God. And they seem to be doing great. And so you're a little jealous. You're like, they're not sucking it up and sacrificing for God and their life's going just fine and my life kind of stinks. And I'm trying to do what's right. And so the temptation is, hey, maybe I'll just go live like them. That's what Psalm 73 is all about. Here's their observations about these wicked. Verse 4. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasses them about as a chain, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than heart could wish. They got, they got it going on. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They're not concerned about the Lord. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Doesn't that irritate you sometimes? Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, the believer says. Man, I'm, why am I living a clean life? It ain't working out. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I have been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. I can't even reckon in my mind how this all works out. Lord, I am trying, and it seems like the scales are tipped against me. But the psalmist figures it out in verse 17. If you highlight verses in your Bible, you want to highlight verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. You know what, young people? Temptations around you all the time to look around and think, the guys that don't care about God seem to be getting away with it. The people that couldn't seem to care less about serving the Lord and their, their tongue is up and down in the streets saying all vile things, their attitudes and their actions are not pleasing the Lord in any way, and they seem to be living a pretty darn good life. And the temptation for you is because you're young. That's the reason I'm, I'm here trying to help you. You're young. Your whole life's ahead of you. Man, that's not so bad. I think I'd like a little bit of this. Or maybe, maybe you're the Christian who says, well, I kind of love the Lord, but I kind of love the world too, so I think I'll just live like this. How about I got one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world? Well, let me just tell you, that ain't comfortable. <laughs> a little visual there. <laughs> you know when you're going to understand how it all fits together? When you go to the sanctuary. 
You know what this building is not? It's not the sanctuary. This is just a place Christians meet. You know where the sanctuary is? It's in the third heaven. It's before the throne of God. You get before the presence of God, and you know what you'll understand? Their end. You'll understand their end. We'll get to the last point in a second. It's talking about the big picture. But the end of the wicked makes the living it up and maybe even getting away with it not worth it. It's just too risky. Verse 18. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. This is the real end of the people who seem to be getting away with it and living the good life, quote unquote, today. Verse 20, as a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when thou walkest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? That's the cry of the heart. And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever for lo, They that are far from thee shall perish and has destroyed them all that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. And y'all, if we don't get in the sanctuary, we don't see the end. And if we don't see the end, we're tempted to act just like Israel acted. We're tempted to live our lives for the quote-unquote American dream. And we talk about keeping up with the Joneses or focusing on all of the blessings and comforts that you can possibly stockpile for yourself today with all the privileges of riches and wealth and comfort that you have been blessed with by being born in this great country. Can I tell you that that is a common problem? It is a common temptation. So my mind goes to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. For there hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. So the temptation exists for you to live for yourself for this life, to compare the circumstances, to complain, to whine and cry and to doubt God while the times are difficult. But Malachi gives us the way to escape. And it is that third point. It is seeing the big picture. Now, the verses, maybe at first reading, may seem a little obscure. I'm going to try and give some sense, at least in a practical application, for you. Because the whole discussion here of Jacob and Esau is simply God reminding Jacob of how much he's loved him. And in reminding Jacob of his love for him, he takes them back to the past. And he establishes the very basis of their relationship. He also takes them back to the past of Esau and reminds them about his relationship and his stand as God's enemy. 
So the principle I want you to get, and this is in your notes, is that the past establishes the future. The past establishes the future. So God reminds them of the judgment that's coming against Esau, where he states in verse 3 and verse 4, or Edom, in other words, and he talks about the blessings that are going to come to Israel. So in in a practical sense, we can talk about the judgment that comes against the wicked and the blessings that come to those who are believers. So Israel's past decisions affect their future state, and Edom's past decisions affect his future state, and You, friends, your past decisions affect your future state. And if your past decision tree includes a full and complete surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ asking for forgiveness of your sins, your future is outstanding. It is heavenly. And so your past decisions affect your future state if you've truly been born again. So I just want to remind you briefly about your past and your future from a couple of places in Scripture. If you're a Christian, this is true of you. Psalm 40 and verse 2, he says, He brought me up also out of an horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. I could take the next two hours and tell you how my feet were in a horrible pit and in the miry clay, and I was stuck in sin and wickedness, and evil thoughts and actions for too many years of my life. But I met the Lord Jesus Christ, and he pulled me out of that mess, and he set my feet upon a rock, and he changed my life. And so now my future is described in Revelation chapter 22. It's yours also, if you've believed on him. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they... Need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's your future, Christian. That's what God has for you. And based on those facts, whether or not you're feeling the love today, you know what, if you're going through the difficulty, if your life has been tough, if things have not been good, if you are feeling distant and cold and far, can you, can you grasp the fact that these are facts? They are not dependent upon your feelings. And as a result, your present reality, as a result of your past and your future, ought to be what we read in Romans 8.18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And friend, when you can look at your life and when you can look at the hardest of times and if you can say that even as terrible as life seems to be today, it is not even in the same ballpark. It is not even in the same sentence. It doesn't even compare to be spoken of. The difficulty of today cannot even compare to the level of the glory that will be revealed in us. So there's no need to doubt God's love. 
But if you're somebody who says, I, I put my trust in Christ, but somehow along the way you've lost your way, you've, you lost your GPS, you lost your map, you, you, you don't know where you're at, you, you don't really know where you've come from, you've forgotten, and you don't really know where you're going, you've taken your eyes off of that, then you don't really know where you're at. <laughs> but you can know because the Bible makes it very clear and God reminds us over and over and over again. You just need to have a good grip on reality. You just need to see the big picture. And no amount of positive thinking will help a bad picture. That's what, that's what Edom said. Edom said, hey, it's bad, but we're going to rebuild. They're positive thinkers, but they're not repenting of their wickedness. And God said, sure, let them build. I'll still tear it down. Because the ultimate end of the wicked is destruction. It is what it is. The ultimate end of the repentant is glory. It is what it is. If you have a narrow vision, you tend to forget that. And that's where we get into trouble. So let me just wrap up with a couple of questions I have for you for application. How's it going? Have you been doubting God's love for you today? How are your circumstances? Tough? Listen, we are all flesh. I can tell you, in my life lately, I've been better. <laughs> I've been better. But you know what I'm not doing? I'm not doubting that God loves me. I'm not doubting that at all. Do I always feel the love? Nope. Do I think God doesn't love me? Oh, no way. I know he loves me. I know he does. I know he's going to get me through. I don't know how. I wish he'd hurry. <laughs> but I'm not doubting it. Because that's the first key step in your walk with God. Don't doubt his love for you. Can you do that? Let's pray about that.